Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, this is where we're going to begin this morning. Let me read verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's just stop again and pray. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that Christ would increase. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, help us to understand the things that you would have for us today, that we would find our identity in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to be touching on um, several different verses or passages of Scripture which you probably know is not our usual habit. We usually try to park it in one place, work through a book of the Bible. I think it's the best way to do it. But um, Lord willing, we will come back next Lord's Day and pick up where we, are, where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But for today, I want you to consider this question. What's in a name? What's in a name? Names are fairly important in the Bible. God changes the names of both Abram and Sarai. He renamed Jacob as Israel. We remember Jesus' important statement that I just read there, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Names are important, but not always just for people. Many times, especially in the Old Testament, we read verses such as, for example, in Genesis chapter 35, verses 6 and 7 says this, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. El means God. El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. The name Bethel, or El Bethel, was important. But of course, probably the most, probably the most important name found in Scripture if you could put it this way, 
is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The name of Jesus Christ. In 1990, the Christian band Petra, which means rock, came out with what is almost certainly one of the greatest albums of all time. <laughs> Beyond belief. And it was called, um, they, sang a, they sang a song called, What's in a Name? Listen to these lyrics. See if anybody that, you're going to see my snark here for a moment. See if anybody that rocks the lake writes lyrics like this anymore. Some men called him rabbi, good teacher, nothing more. The son of just a carpenter who taught along the shore. Some men called him master, Elijah, come again. Some left their nets to follow him to learn to fish for men. Some say he's Messiah, I am, who's always been. The Baptist called him Lamb of God who takes away our sin. What's in the name that the demons flee? What's in the name that the captives go free? What's in the name that every knee should bow? In the name of Jesus, name above all names, there is glory, power and glory forever and ever, forever and ever. Some said son of David returning to his throne. Some said he's the son of man with origin unknown. And one said he's the son of God, the rock on which we stand, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. No other name can sound so sweet. No other name is so complete. No other name can bring release. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And there's a guitar solo there. <laughs> but what about for the people of God? In the New Testament, the most common name or identifier of God's people is the word saint. When the Apostle Paul writes to a church, he will often write to the, the saints at Ephesus or to the saints at Philippi. Sometimes these saints are referred to as brothers or brethren, which is actually a better translation. Brothers and sisters. It stresses the family nature of the people of God. Six times in the book of Acts, and only in Acts, they're referred to as the way, or followers of the way, because of Jesus' words in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, disciple is a common New Testament word for a follower of Christ, but at the time it was, it was actually more of a generic term for a follower of any rabbi or teacher. Interestingly, Acts 11.26 tells us that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This really is the name that has stuck even to the present day throughout history. Christians. But what about, what about church names? What about the names of a specific group of specific Christian believers? Well, in the New Testament, they were simply known by the city in which they met. I, I, I said this before, the saints at Corinth or the saints at Rome. There was one church in that city, and so there was no confusion. Sometime after the New Testament, I'll give you just a little bit of history here, as Christianity was made legal and 
buildings began to be built for the purpose of assembled worship, those buildings were often dedicated to the, to the memory of or to the legacy of a certain person. Initially, it was the apostles. So think of St. Paul's or St. John's. Later, they would be named after other bishops or, or other prominent or notable Christians. And you can think of some of those. As time goes on, remember in the West, there really was only one Christian denomination, so to speak. And it was what we call the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just simply means universal. In the East, you had the Eastern Orthodox Church after the year 1054. So there were really only two, what we could say as denominations, I I really wouldn't put it that way, but two groups of Christians until we get to the the 1500s and and the Protestant Reformation. There were a few other splinter groups all through history, but really it was just those two. Throughout history, as I said, there have been splinter groups that have broken off, um, and they've often come to be named, usually kind of in a derogatory way, after their leader. So think of the Waldensians, who followed Peter Waldo, or in the early days of the Reformation era, even the Mennonites or the Lutherans. And just by way of clarification, the Mennonites, historically speaking, were not part of the not part of the Reformation in the classic sense. They were actually part of what we call now the Radical Reformation. But Menno Simons was a contemporary of Martin Luther. So I'm just pointing out that they were named after their leaders. When it became clear that the Protestant Reformation was unstoppable, denominational names began to appear based on certain, uh, that group's certain denominational distinctions. And again, they were first actually used in in a derogatory manner. Methodists and Quakers, for example. So those churches would simply name themselves based on their location and their denomination. Think First Methodist Church of Bell Fountain or of Kansas City or whatever. And so this church right here was founded in 1824 as Logansville Christian Church. And Christian, while it sounds nonspecific, is actually very specific. It was part of what would become a denomination called um, Christian churches. And that denomination actually split several times, because of course, right? It actually split several times. And one of the most prominent denominations under that category is known as the Disciples of Christ. Belfont First Christian Church is a part of that. That's the one with the big gold dome on the top. Frankly, um, just to be honest, we're not on the same theological page. This brings us, though, into the modern era, really after World War II, where we see other kind of names developed, names that we would see today, um, names like Calvary Baptist Church, or Goshen Friends, which is Quaker Church, or Stony Creek Church of the Brethren. These are names with, with different, uh, different meanings than we had seen in previous centuries. Names that are, that are nevertheless significant and identifying, but in different ways. It's not a criticism in any way, just the development of church names. It really wasn't until the 1980s and 90s that we see the rise of other types of names, um, particularly dropping the denominational identifier 
and adding a word like community. That's what this church did. In the late 80s, early 90s, they dropped that Christian and they added the word community in its place. There was also, in the, in the early 2000s, there was a brief and unfortunate, in my view, um, moment where trendy and emerging churches decided to use Greek or Latin or sometimes even Hebrew words in their names, the meanings of which were lost on the general population. You've seen some of those. Now, following trends, and I'm, I'm getting somewhere here, following trends is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, boys' names like Onesimus and Agrippa or Nimrod have gone out of style. Thankfully, although Agrippa is a great name for a man, a young boy should be named Agrippa. Or maybe not. On the one hand, we all kind of know that names are really not that important. Um, you can meet a Bob or a John or a Nancy or a Rachel, and you can get used to their name pretty easily without even questioning it. The same goes for a church. Most of the time, we don't really care what the church is named. On the other hand, when it comes to a church name, it really ought to, and in fact does say something about who the church is and what they believe. You can, for example, you could look at a list of church names, and you could rule out the ones that you would never visit just based on the name, right? Maybe because it's a weird name. Maybe because it's a denominational name and you would never go to visit that certain denomination. But there will also be some that you're attracted to or want to look into just based on the name. So these days, our location isn't enough. And because we have no, we have no specific uh, denominational affiliation, our name ought to tell the world, or at least those interested, who we are and what we believe. And it should remind us of who we are and what we stand for. And so this morning, as we consider these things, I have three easy-to-remember points. Let me give them to you right now. Redemption, Bible, church. Redemption, Bible, church. Redemption. As the disciples go to all of the nations making disciples, teaching them to observe all of Christ's commands, their words, their message is a message of good news. It's a message of the gospel. In fact, the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul writes this, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the message of the gospel. That is the good news. In the Old Testament, the phrase good news, often we refer to, to any kind of uh, welcome report. And in the Greco-Roman society of the New Testament era especially, 
This is best seen, picture this, in the herald running back from the battlefield proclaiming the gospel, the good news of victory. But for us to understand the New Testament concept of the gospel, the good news, we should look to the prophet Isaiah, who tells us that the meaning of the gospel is specifically of divine redemption. Redemption. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9, 10, and 11. It says this, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the good news to be proclaimed. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he quotes from, really from both the prophet Joel and Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, when he writes this. This is Romans chapter 10, verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, heralding? How are they to herald, preach, unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who herald the gospel. Do you remember, do you remember the angel's pronouncement, what he proclaimed to the shepherds as he announced the birth of Jesus Christ? It was the good news. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The gospel is the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. Redemption means, it literally means buying back something. And so in the Old Testament, when someone sold his property or, or even got so far into debt that he had to sell himself into slavery, a, a relative could buy back the property or buy the man's freedom by paying off the debt. This relative is, is often called a kinsman redeemer. Leviticus chapter five, 25 talks about that. In the book of Ruth, the whole book, four chapters, the whole story of Ruth is about the kinsman redeemer. It is about Boaz who redeems the widow Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi from poverty by marrying her. He becomes her kinsman redeemer. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to redeem many, to give his life as the price paid for the redemption of his people. He buys us back as God's lost property. 
Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was of great value, and it purchased for him a people for his own possession. And so we belong to him. His redemption of us makes us his own people. So what does redemption say? What does redemption tell the world? I think there's at least seven things. I'm sure there's more, but let me give you seven things that redemption says. The first is this. Redemption declares the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, patience, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God did not save you because of you, right? God did not save me because of me. God saved us because he is righteous. Because he, to bring us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 from last week, he provided a way of escape through the, from sin and from death through the death of Jesus Christ. And resurrection. Redemption declares the righteousness of God. Number two. Redemption declares that we have a new identity. Following his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus' his first real act of public ministry after that in Luke's gospel account is Luke chapter 4. Turn there. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Luke 4, 16 says this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is reading there from Isaiah chapter 61, the first couple of verses. And he's also saying what he is proclaiming as they're all staring at him. He is proclaiming that he is our Redeemer. That his act of redemption would pay the deadly eternal price for our sin, that our sin required, and it delivers us to live under his name. It delivers us to live in Christ, in eternal forgiveness, in eternal joy, in eternal freedom. He read the first two verses of Isaiah 61, and the very next verse says this, Isaiah 61, 3. 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Redemption declares that we have a new identity, that we are in Christ, even oaks of righteousness. Number three, redemption declares that we are free and secure forever. Redemption declares that we are free and secure forever. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. In this passage, the author, the preacher of Hebrews, is comparing the the Hebrew tabernacle of the Old Testament, or the tent, and the priestly sacrifices of the Old Testament with the work of Christ on the cross. He's making this comparison. So Hebrews 9.11 says this, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He secured for us an eternal redemption. Jesus Our great high priest frees us from our sin and he secures our redemption forever. Redemption declares that we are free and secure forever. That brings us to number four. Redemption also declares that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I hope you have that memorized just because you've heard me say it. Redemption declares that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This tells us that the the forgiveness of Christ is eternal. No condemnation. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14 says this, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul also writes to the Ephesians in his opening, that glorious opening of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, he says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We have redemption through the blood of Christ, and it is eternal. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, 
if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then because of his redemption of you, there is therefore now no condemnation. And this should drive us to a life of worship. That's really number five. Redemption frees us to worship our Redeemer because of who he is and what he has done. We could go here as we think about worship to a number of different passages. But remember that Hebrews 9.14, I read this a minute ago, it tells us that our redemption provided by the blood of Christ purifies us to serve the living God. Turn to Psalm 111. I want you to see these words as well. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is why, this is why we're a worshiping church. This is why we're, we're, not, we're not wasting our time and our effort on sappy love songs to Jesus. But we're going to sing the truth. This is why we pray together as a church. This is why we preach Christ crucified. This is why we read large sections of hard-to-pronounce scripture sometimes. This is why we believe that the word... The whole counsel of God is good news that we share with anyone who will come in. Listen, we're not cool. We're not. You need to admit that. I need to admit that. We're not trying to be the next big thing. We're not trying to attract a, a, a crowd we're not trying to attract attention like so many, so many other churches around us. We're not interested in developing tons of programs that are fun for the whole family. That, that kind of ministry is exhausting. I know that from experience. We just want to be an ordinary church proclaiming an extraordinary Savior. Number six. Redemption declares Christ's words from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Redemption declares this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Does that sound like good news to you? Does that sound like good news? How about when he said to the paralytic who was carried in by his friends, and the gospel tells us that he saw their faith, and he said this to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Redemption is good news. Acts 2.21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. Redemption declares the good news. And then finally, number seven of my first point. Redemption declares our future hope. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 25 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our future hope is as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is seeing Christ face to face. And so we say with John the Revelator, come quickly, Lord. We might see Christ face to face. Our message is the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's all we have. That's all we have. And it is enough. If you haven't figured this out yet, we take the word of God very seriously. And so along with redemption, this is the next point this morning. Bible. Bible. We believe, as the London Confession opens... The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We believe, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We believe that the Bible is God's method of communicating with His people. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe in the, Roman, uh, the, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, that, the, that Scripture is sufficient, it is, it is profitable, it will teach you who God is and what He has done. This is... This is the only place that I can go to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We believe that God's message of redemption is revealed throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. We believe that there is a scarlet thread of redemption woven throughout the scriptures so that we might even say the Bible is our middle name. Redemption, Bible, and finally, church. Church. This really brings us full circle. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that he would build his church, we understand that he's talking about the people, right? We understand that he's talking about the, the great cloud of witnesses even that have gone before us. We understand that he's not concerned with the building. In fact, in the early days of the American colonies, um, as a pushback against the Church of England with all of its government mandates for the church, including pre-written prayers and really they had an overall lack of religious liberty, when those Puritans fled Europe to come to the new world to establish a, a new colony that would serve, as they called it, as a, as a city on a hill, they built simple buildings for worship and called them meeting houses. That's what they were called. I've used that in a couple of emails and comments here and there, but that's why. They were just simple buildings that they called them meeting houses. We all understand that the meeting house isn't eternal. It will burn up one day. It will, it will deconstruct back into the earth. But we believe that the church, that the ecclesia, the called out ones, are the assembly of the saints. We believe that the church is the assembling of the family of God who have been called out from sin and death to live, a, to live a new life of holiness through redemption in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30 puts it like this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It only makes sense with this move, buying a new building uh, eight miles down the road. It only makes sense to change our name. We thought about taking the little Loganville sign and bringing it with us and saying, this is Logansville now, but that wouldn't really work. And so we're going to change our name. We'll do it this summer after we move, um, so as to limit any confusion. But my prayer is, and I would ask for you to pray, that we would be an assembly of the saints that proclaim the good news of the redemption in Christ Jesus that we would hold fast to the word of truth, the Bible. And that we would be a church that stands upon the rock of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because it is Christ who builds his church, and so the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Would you pray that for us? Redemption Bible Church. An ordinary church proclaiming an extraordinary Savior. Pray with me.
Lord, we know that the name, uh, on one hand, it, it doesn't mean much. It'll just become a, a thing that we say. But Lord, I pray that we would believe the truths behind it, that we would hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have sent your son to be a propitiation for our sins, to redeem us from our sin and our lawlessness, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you, that we would be a people who hold fast to the word of God, no matter what our society, our culture around us, our neighbors, no, no matter what the world does, Lord, as they continue to push us to the margins and mock and belittle Christians, that we would hold fast to your word, to the truth in it, that we would share it, that we would speak the truth of your word in love, that we would not be like the Ephesians who held fast and yet lost their first love. Father, that we would be an assembly of the saints, that Christ himself is building, that we would stand upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he would build his church and that we would, we would be a part of that. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. Pray that we would continue to be and proclaim our extraordinary Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.